You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras D-backs edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand recently caught up with D-backs executive vice president and general manager Mike Hazen to discuss how his time in Cleveland and Boston has made him the executive he is today, why major league offices need to stop hiring so many Ivy Leaguers, and why Paul Goldschmidt remains one of the most underrated players in baseball. So Mike, you played for four years at Princeton. You're drafted in the 31st round by the Padres in 1998 uh, before a shoulder injury shoulder injury ended your career. How, how tough was that for you to deal with as a guy who obviously had his sights set on a professional playing career? Yeah, you know, it was uh, when the um, when when your career comes to an end. It's it was it was sort of jarring, I think, probably as it is for for most of the players here now and the players that we've dealt with for a while. One thing is a point of clarification, my shoulder injury didn't uh, didn't end my career. My lack of ability ended my career. Um, well, I so, guess the things so I, I read, they were being nice. Yes, it was yes, people, people, you know, as history has gone on and time has healed some wounds, somehow my playing prowess is, is, is perceived to be far better than it was uh, at the time. The fact is I just wasn't very good. And, you know, but again, you, you, you don't think that way, I think, when you're a minor league player. You know, you, every and that's great and that's what we want all our players to do too is you know you 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 start to play professional baseball and why 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 can't you play in the big leagues you know you're here you have a uniform and they pay for you to do it and um and you always had those dreams when you were a kid and uh, unfortunately that you know that wasn't meant to be um so i had to think pretty quickly as a 24 year old non-prospect um you know what what i was going to do next and and you know i had to make that decision fairly quickly i think um and, and, you know, it wasn't my choice, but you have to move on and pick up. And, you know, I, I do think one of the big things for me in that is I, is I always keep that in my mind and have being a farm director and others that when you're now on the other side of that table, you know, how extremely difficult it is to hear that. I, you know, I only had to hear it once. Some players have to hear it a lot. Um, but hearing it once and as devastating as it was has always stuck with me. Every time we send somebody out of camp or we had to release somebody as a farm director, it, it, you very quickly can put yourself in that person's shoes. Um, I think it's something that keeps you pretty humble about what you're doing. Um, and, and there's a personal, you know, there's a personal aspect of each one of those um, when you do it. You know, and I think I value that perspective even as hard as some of those conversations are. I value that perspective, you know, because it, 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 you, when you end up doing a lot of them, as you do when you have big camps um, in the minors or the majors, you know, sometimes the, the, the challenge is running together, and, and you never want that to be the case. How did you land your first job? as a non-player. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I was done, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I don't think working in a baseball front office was really a thing. It's become a thing. <laughs> At the time, I had never even thought of it or heard of it, and, you know, I knew who a general manager was and all, but I never really thought about what what skill set I had to really work in a front office. Um, and so, but just starting to talk to people about what to do next, and really the one, the, the one simple thing was I love the game of baseball, sort of, period. Um, that's all I knew. And, and I, didn't, I didn't want to stop playing, but I was going to stop playing. Um, and so the next step really was, was trying to figure out how to, how to maybe stay in the game somehow. And, and I, you know, whether it had been coaching or scouting or anything like that. So I just started sending resumes around. Uh, Scott Bradley, who was my coach at Princeton, um, put me in touch with Mark Shapiro and Peter Gammons. And, um, you know, through that circle, 
I, I ended up getting an internship with the Cleveland Indians, and um, I worked for Peter for a summer in the Cape, scouting the Cape League. He uh, <clears throat> he loved the Cape League, but didn't have time with all he was doing to get down there. And so he was like, just go down there and watch games and send me reports, and I'll try to help you out as best I can. And he sent those reports around to GMs, and at the end of the summer started getting phone calls and you know ended up getting an internship with the Indians. During your time with the Indians, you worked your way up from intern, mm -hmm. advanced scout, assistant director of pro scouting, and ultimately assistant director of player development. Mm -hmm. As you made your way through the ranks there, was becoming a GM your ultimate goal? Not really. Um, again, I, I think I didn't really know what any of that meant <laughs> when, when I first got there. Um, one thing that I'm extremely grateful to, even as an intern, was the things, and, and John Hart was in his last year as GM there, and then Mark took over, Mark hired me, but John was there for that first year, and I, I still remember even that first year, walking in to do John Hart's board, his 40-man roster board in his office, and he'd be on the phone, and you know, you'd knock and not want to come in, and he'd be like, no, come on in here, Stand, you, you'll, you know, you can, you can learn by listening to people talk on the phone, and I'm, you know, you, you can be in here if you want to, and, and I, and I had that early exposure to those guys, to Mark and, and John, um, and both treated me that way the whole time, and, you know, as respectful as you tried to be, there was such an open door and exposure to anything and everything that was going on in the organization that you couldn't help but learn. Um, I think over time, as I watched them do their job, it, you know, in the end, I didn't still didn't necessarily think that I'd be a general manager someday, but the, sort of being in a leadership position in a baseball front office, whether ultimately as a farm director or otherwise, was was something that I think. I think I could, you know, do this in time, hopefully. I, I like, you know, being around these guys, being part of the team um, as we made a lot of decisions and we went through some ups and downs there. It was a great learning experience, though, and, and it's because of, that's the way they made it. And, again, I try to keep that in the back of my mind, too. Now that you're in a different role, um, you know, you have the ability to set that same, you know, culture or dynamic um, if you want. I feel like I've asked this exact question to about ten other guys so far this spring. What did you learn most from Mark Shapiro? <laughs> I feel like everybody worked for him at some point. Uh, I, we may all have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He, um, he was so focused on building the culture of the organization through so many different avenues. It was two, two, two of the things that probably stand out were maybe in a, from a front office standpoint of the quality of hiring, every hire that mattered. Um, from internship, the, the whatever, you know, even even when we were going through our internship process, like the seriousness through which we took that, when I moved above that and sort of then became part of the hiring process for the for the internship position, the standard that we held, the the what we were looking for, the the standard which was you should be looking for future general manager, right? And and you know we're, everybody gets pretty busy with everything that goes on in during the course of a season with a baseball front office, the draft and and the season itself and all these other things. And, you know, you can lose focus on having that standard for hiring interns and, and other employees. And he always made sure that that standard was extremely high. And I think that led to the culture that exists within his organization. And then on, from a player procurement standpoint, you know, he was, he was very, the, the cultural aspect of it in terms of makeup on the team um, was always a big deal to him about what types of players we had playing for us, and that it mattered. It, you know, talent mattered, but the makeup mattered too. 
it seems like front offices around the league are loaded with Ivy Leaguers. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from the obvious education you all received, do you think there's a reason that, that front offices are skewing that way in recent years? No, I, no, I don't. I mean, I think, you know, we, I think one, as an industry, we need to do a little better job of branching out of that, uh, diversifying, you know, backgrounds, I think, a little bit more. Um, that's a challenge for all of us that I think we can all get too insulated into how we think and thinking the same way. It's dangerous from a, I think, from a decision-making process standpoint. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, the connections are, are, are part of how any industry probably works. Um, but we try to stay away from that in, in a lot of cases because we don't want to get wrapped up in, in, again, like channeling one type of person that we have here, one that think all the same way, that look at the game the same way. The, the best part about this game and, and with the increasing influence of all these outside factors is there are opportunities for so many different types of backgrounds to make an impact on a baseball operation. I think we're seeing that organically through web development, data development, um, architects, um, you know, and that's just on the non-baseball side of things, software development, which, which will branch out into different backgrounds, I think, skill sets than some of the people that you may be talking about. Um, and then I think, you know, the, 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 one of the interesting backgrounds that is the former player that is now interested in front office work, you know, the guy that's actually lived it for real, not like some me for fake, um, but, you know, has played 10 years. A lot of you played college ball. <laughs> I've but, seen but, that. But, but 10 years of big league time, right, of, right. of guys that, you know, we've had the fortune of hiring. We, we, you know, guy we had in Boston and Brian Bannister and, the, you know, a couple of guys, Dan Heron and, and Burke Badenhop here. And, I, and you see that Tommy Hottavy in Chicago Cubs and, and others, you know, you see a lot of those guys that have this – this desire, Gabe Kapler work, you know, working in front offices that they have such a unique background and skill set, you know, um, that brings so much to the table in terms of for those of us that never experienced that and can't really see it through their eyes. So I, I do think with the way each organization seems is trying to create competitive advantages for themselves in doing that, part of that is going to be expanding the breadth and the, the diversity of their front office. Yeah, the Twins brought in Tory Hunter and Latrell Absolutely. Hawkins, Michael Kadire this yeah, year. Right. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to see um, and, and why they're doing that. Like hiring impact people that have a skill set that a lot of people that, <laughs> like me, just to speak for myself, don't have. And, and I think there's becoming an increasing, there's an increasing value on that in I see. And, and I think ownerships are recognizing that in the sense that we're expanding our front offices we're making investments in those areas and jobs in front offices which is awesome um, I think it's only going to help the game it seems like a lot of those positions used to be oh you'll bring in the former player to you know be a face and totally wave his hat and go to some luncheons right. and that kind of thing and now a lot of the players there's who are real job descriptions getting in, these are real jobs well because they want them I think they, they you know I think the 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 being a part of the baseball operation, it's this is a very challenging environment and industry, and it's it's they're hard jobs, but they're I think they're rewarding jobs. You're you're part of a team that could win, and they I think just like we are, I mean 
they're more addicted to that from their playing days than even we are, right? The thrill of being part of a team that has a chance to, you know, one of 30 teams that could, could win a World Series. And you don't necessarily have to travel the baseball schedule <laughs> right, as a coach right, or a right. manager. So, so I think the, the balance can be struck a little better from a, from a family life standpoint. But, yeah, I think the traditional path was in the past, you know, maybe that some of these guys would go into coaching or and now there's this – I think it's expanding into other areas, and so I think it's great for the game. You joined the Red Sox in 2006 mm-hmm. as the director of player development for a kid raised in Massachusetts. Was that a, a dream to go work for the Red Sox? It was. It was. Um, when the Red Sox called, um, I remember Mark calling me in, and we were in a hotel in downtown Cleveland having these leadership meetings, and he said, hey, look, look, the Red Sox want to interview you for, your, for the farm director job, and John Farrell was the farm director at the time, and he just said, and this is another thing that I take away from him. He said, if they offer you the job, you got to go. Like, I'd love to keep you here. Um, you have a job here. If they offer you the job, you got to go. you you got to take this opportunity. you got to take this responsibility. you got to take this step. You can't. Don't just stay here because this is what's comfortable. I always remember that. Um, and, and being pushed into that challenge, which I probably wasn't ready for. I'm sure Theo and Ben will attest to that uh, when I get over there. But... And, 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 yeah, being able to go home was phenomenal. The, the team I grew up watching my entire life with my dad, and, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a great opportunity. And then, and then not even really knowing what I was getting into, uh, ending up being able to work with Theo and Jed and Ben and, and a lot of others is, uh, you know, is an experience I'll never forget. I'm sure nobody came out of the woodworks to ask you for tickets or anything, right? <laughs> Your ticket list got a little bit longer, certainly. <laughs> Um, Let me guess, mostly for the Yankee games. <laughs> no, not, not there. Not there. Duquette, People... Duquette told me that when he was the GM, he also yep. from New England, yep. he said all of a sudden everybody wanted tickets, but they only seemed to want them for the Yankee games and the playoff games. Right. I said, where are you when Cleveland's in town or <laughs> no, Detroit's in town? Somehow, somehow my, my ticket requests were fairly, you know, they went 81 strong. Playoffs, <laughs> so. Under your watch with the Red Sox, you develop players like Dustin Pedroia, mm-hmm. Jacoby Ellsbury, John Lester. How rewarding was it to see those guys play such key roles on a World Series? Yeah, well, number one, I, I de- developing under my watch is a is a is a very generous statement. I think, uh, yes, I was there while those guys were there too. Um, those guys needed very little development. They did the majority of what they were going to do, and um, because of the talent, and the makeup that they had. Um, I will say, being a part of a group, the scouting group that we had there, that was bringing in those players year after year after year um, and then seeing those guys come up through the system have an impact on the organization have an impact on the team and really in 2007 having a large impact on a World Series championship team and then even in 08 going all the way to the ALCS and 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 09 making the playoffs it was very rewarding watching kids that you got to see in a ball um, you know whether they struggled or not, or how they got to where they got, or the Anthony Rizzo's and the, you know, and 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 others uh, that came up through there. You you, you know that's part of what makes the game so fun to work in it. To those those are your rewards in the front office is to watch those guys fulfill their dreams and be successful in those large stages and watching them become a part of a of a team and and, and in the organization when sometimes. You know, it, it can be a challenge with an older team or a younger team trying to blend all those things together and watching those guys become part of the fabric and, and of Red Sox history was was phenomenal. But, you know, it, you can't do those things without 
having great scouting departments that bring those guys in year after year. And I mean, look at the makeup of the guys that you're talking about between Lester and, and Jacoby and, and Petey and Uke and, um, you know, and then Pap and Daniel Bard and, and all the guys that came up through there. So I would assume that after 04, I mean, a lot of that 04 team, some of them are still there in 07, but bringing in new blood mm -hmm. was probably important to getting that second championship because not that there was complacency among the old guys, but once you've done it, it's different going for a number two, whereas guys who weren't there for 04 were probably taking a different approach to it. Yeah, I, I think it was more of a natural. I think that 04 team was a little older, and I think it was just natural that the, that the roster was going to roll over. I think we saw, um, you know, where that team was headed and what we wanted to do from trying to sustain that run. <laughs> you know, as, as good as you are at the time, if you're not looking down the road two or three years, you're going to get yourself caught into a bad spot that is going to be a lot harder to get yourself out of. Now, to get there sometimes, you have to make tough decisions that don't necessarily match up with what your fan base is expecting to see. You know, you ride everything out until the end um, to when your team gets too old. It could be too late. You know, um, and so I think a lot of decisions that were made to make sure that we were infusing a lot of those younger guys onto the rosters was strategic by Theo in terms of trying to sustain that run for as long as possible. And I mean, look, even that's not you know fail safe in a lot of ways because when you bring young players onto your roster, there's going to be some volatility with those young players. And and there was uh, we were we were very fortunate as those some of those guys that came onto the roster and in and Petey and Uke and, and Pap and Ellsbury and those guys, uh, Johnny Lester, they, you know, they, they sort of, in a lot of cases, hit the ground running. Um, but, you know, that, that was sort of something that needed to happen, I think, given the different, where the organization was in 04 to 07. A lot of the guys you worked with in Boston at that time, mm -hmm. Theo, Jed, Ben, yourself, are now with other teams, mm -hmm. top decision-making positions. When you think back to that group being together, it was almost unrealistic to think that you would all stay together for a long time. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I never thought the, the best part about that group, and, and I can say this, and I, I'm, I'm sure it happens in other places, but from my perspective was nobody wanted Theo's job. Nobody wanted Jed's job. Nobody wanted Ben's. Like, everybody had a job to do, and everybody just kind of kept doing it. And I think that's part of the culture that Theo created, that everyone being as part of the team felt valued as part of the team and um and i think that's why i don't know I, at the time i never I, now i sit back and look at it and say okay maybe you know we should have thought that way um i don't think anybody was bold enough to think that you know what or to think what would happen as as, as those things kind of all split apart over time but um you know, I look back on those days, we all do with tremendous fondness. I, I'll never forget having worked with that group of people. And, you know, maybe, maybe the band will get together, get back together someday and when we're all old and, and, and decrepit. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was such a blast. And, and that, that's all because of Theo, you know, and what he created there. Um, it was just, it was so much fun coming to work. It was crazy. It got crazy sometimes. I can't tell you any of those stories, but, but they, uh, you know, it was it was a great place to be. Um, and we had some ups and we had some downs, you know. And the, the ups in Boston are great, and the downs in Boston are tough, just like they are in some other places. But 
it was a, it was a great place to be. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. You interviewed for GM jobs in San Diego and Anaheim. I've been told the GM interview process is quite grueling. Mm-hmm. What did you learn most from going through that process a couple times? How little you know about the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it was an interesting dynamic. It's, it's an interesting process. You know, you try to prepare, you, you, you watch from afar 29 other teams, and part of our job is knowing 29 other teams, but you never really know any organization inside and out. You can't, um, because you don't really know a lot of the personal things about what goes on in the organization, whether it's how the front office operates, how the ownership structure operates, how what the players are really like, other than evaluating them, and, and, the, and the cursory makeup information you have on players. So, you know, think you really go into those things blind in a lot of ways as much preparation as you try to do um but it's a it's a you know it's, it was a great experience on the backside because when you even when you didn't get that job you came back out of there you were you were a little more of an expert on that organization at least for your organization because right. you know you had studied their minor league system in detail or their recent drafts and international signings and their major league team and um so that was that was and it's always you know it's always interesting because even in those interview processes it's not usually a one-way street it's a it can be conversational at times, and you learn a lot about how that organization operates, and that's fascinating to me, because I think you can take some. Everybody does things well, and we all do things probably not as well, and you know you try to pick up on those pieces. We all copy each other in some way, shape, or form on certain things. That's how this league runs. Um, so when you could pick up some of those things, it was it was great. After four years as the assistant GM in Boston, you were promoted to GM. Uh, yet the perception was that because Dave Dombrowski mm-hmm. had final say, your power was limited. Was it difficult? Was it a difficult situation? No, no. I think I think that's accurate. Um, whether power being limited or basically being in the same role, I mean, yeah, that's what, that's what it was. Dave was the number one decision maker. At the end of the day, you know, he made decisions. I, Dave, uh, what where where it it worked so well was internally. Dave didn't operate that way. You know, he ultimately he's accountable and was responsible for every decision in the end. And, and, and that was his choice to make that. But the, the way he, I mean, valued everything that we had to say in any one of those, we're all, anytime you're involved, the way I look at it is, and this goes for me now here, is whenever you're involved in a decision, if you have a voice in that decision, if, if, you, if you have a, or, or have an opinion given in that, in that decision, you're responsible for that decision. I, it doesn't matter what it said, what publicly is perceived as who has final say. I've always felt that if you're going to have something to say, you, you're, you better be accountable to what you say. And if you are wrong, you are wrong. Um, some of the things that went sideways on us in Boston, I don't, they weren't Ben's fault, they were mine. And I still carry that with me today. Um, and, you know, again, he was the ultimate authority in that situation. And so it is, you know, those things happen in the game. But from my personal perspective, I, I, I was just as responsible for everything that happened um, and, and to why some things ended up going the way they did. But again, so when, when Dave came in, I mean, however the structure was, being included in every inch of what we did as an organization, I mean, Dave, Dave did that. And so 
it was great. You know, we got to learn a ton from somebody that had, one, operated a front office a lot differently than the ones that I had been exposed to, and then, and, and took a lot from that. And then, and then two, you know, he, he valued what, what I think what I had to say in a lot of cases. And so, um, you know, that was a rewarding experience. You knew, obviously knew Tori Lavulo yep. well from your time in Cleveland to Boston. Was it an easy decision to, to bring him out to Arizona? Um, it was an easy decision to bring Tori. It was a tough decision in choosing the manager because of the candidates we had. Uh, Phil Nevin was outstanding. Um, he's going to make a great manager. Uh, really came down um, at the end between those two guys, up, and the pool we had was fantastic too. Um, but in the end, I, th I think... I remember going. Aller Baird used to always say, every day I knew him, um, the most important relationship is between the general manager and the manager. And if that relationship isn't working, if that relationship isn't solid, you got problems. You're gonna have problems in the organization. And and so, as much as you know, my my it wasn't so much my history from a personal standpoint with Tori. It was the knowledge of how we work together and the ability for us to dig into very difficult conversations very quickly, knowing what the work that we needed to get done here, um, that was sort of the ultimate reason why. And, and beyond being a, a, a watched him be a very good tactical manager, he's a great relationship builder, he's a tremendous communicator, all those skills um, that a lot of our guys had, and he has exceptional skills in those areas, that was probably one of the, the biggest um, separators for me. You hired a new analytics director here. Was there a feeling that the organization needed to catch up in that aspect? Um, I don't know. I don't know what catch, you know, I, I, for me, what I felt like we would need for a baseball operation to make good, strong decisions was having all the resources available and, the, and, the, and trying to pin all the variables down to be able to, to develop that process that fit for how I, well, how we wanted to see this baseball operation go. And um, really one of the areas we wanted to ramp up was, was that. And, you know, we, we made some changes, which is never easy early. Um, Mike was somebody that we had known from from afar uh, anytime you can have somebody from the Pittsburgh Pirates organization join your organization you're doing something pretty well given how Neil runs his operation and, and the people that he hires um, you know one after the next and and to get somebody of Mike's caliber was phenomenal and we just really felt like we wanted to build out in a lot of different areas and that was one of them um, and we've started to do that so uh, outside of fantasy baseball enthusiasts, it seemed like Paul Goldschmidt may be one of the more anonymous stars in the game. Why do you think more people have recognized how good he is? I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think maybe, you know, his workmanlike professionalism, personality, he's so understated. Um, what a great teammate. You can tell already uh, from the day you walk in the respect that people have for him internally. Um, you never see him... Uh, do anything outwardly showy, uh, which he probably could given his talent. Um, but we're, we're very fortunate to have somebody of his caliber on this team. I mean, he's a superstar. There's no other way to, to really describe it. It it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> uh, we have him, and he's playing for us, so that's great. That's all that really matters, and I don't know how, it, how he sees it. But, but like I said, we're fortunate. And from a teammate standpoint, from a professionalism standpoint, work ethic, he's, he leads the charge in every way. Zach Greinke didn't have his typical season last year. Shelby Miller's year was a huge disappointment. How do you feel about the overall state of your rotation? Feel good. Feel good. Um, I think anytime you get into transitions, you know, you can expect expect some variability with performance at times. And you know, 
Frank was coming in off coming in as a free agent with a big contract, and you know Shelby obviously was coming in with with the expectations of a big trade, uh, both of which created a, uh, generated a lot of notoriety right out, off the shoot, and you know look we're we're everyone's human, and and you know you can try to be unaffected by everything that you're dealing with, but that may be impossible. I think both guys, you know, one of the things that we've tried to express to them is that you don't have there is no expectation to live up to where we're trying to come together as a team it's going to take all 25 guys for us to get to where we want to be it's not going to take one or two we don't need one or two people to carry the team one or two people can't carry a baseball team for 162 it's going to take 25 and usually 40 to get through um, and we just want everybody to be part of that one out of 25 to 40 and and contribute what they can contribute and if we can do all that together you know we, we feel pretty good about it do you view aj pollock as an addition of sorts given the new that played 12 games last season i do uh, and, and david peralta as well you know i think he's an under under the radar loss for us uh, for a large portion of the season last year so having both aj and david back on a full-time basis is a huge benefit it puts i think other guys in better positions defensively i think it improves our outfield defense significantly which was a challenge last year and subsequently should help out those pitchers that we were referring to earlier and, you know, and how, um, and how they performed. I mean, you know, if we're not catching the baseball, some of the balls that should be caught, then we're not helping our pitching staff at all, and we need to improve on that. You mentioned Dan Harron before you brought him in as the club's pitching strategist. What do, what do you hope that he can provide to your, your pitchers? Well, the experience of being a pitcher for as long as he has in the big leagues and really the transitions he went through as a pitcher are interesting from where he when he had stuff to when he didn't and still having to find out way find ways to win in the big leagues and his makeup and having been here and the way people talked about him um, I think bringing some of that experience onto our pitchers uh, through whether it's mentally through experience through um, the strategy of game planning how he did things the way he did them um, you know trying to build out our entire infrastructure and on how we continue to teach pitching and, and, and our whole pitching program. So he's going to have a large impact on a lot of things that we do. What kind of player do you think Yasmani Tomas can be? I think Yasmani Tomas has huge power. You know, he's, he's you know, we're, we're still um, continuing to work with him. You know, he's played a couple of different positions and now he's more established himself in the corner outfield. Um, you know, we see him obviously as an everyday player that, that's going to impact the middle of our lineup. Uh, you know, he had a really good year last year, 60 extra base hits. Um, you know, he brings that. We have a lot of really good hitters in our lineup. He brings a lot of thunder. And I think sitting in the middle of the lineup, he's a dangerous guy. A lot of talent on your big league roster, but the farm system hasn't been ranked very high by those who do such things. How long does it take to restock a system? Well, it's a good question. I mean, you, you can look at, you can look at um, certain things that were done this offseason with clubs making some significant trades. So, you know, one club in particular in American League Central that yeah, pulled back quite a bit of talent, some trades, um, and, I, and I think probably shot their farm system ranking from, you know, wherever they were to one of the top. And so I think it can happen that quickly if you have, if you're going that route in terms of how some of the trades you make. Organically, if, if, if you know, through the drafting and developing process from the, from, the draft when you're selecting the player or the international market where you're bringing in young players um, you know it, it can take some time it can take some time with the you know a lot of your <clears throat> best players are, are probably going to come at the top of those picks or, or the top of that market but if we do a good job in trying to find their big leaguers all the way through that draft and, and that's going to be our challenge to make sure we find those guys and and try to build our farm system as quickly as possible no matter how how no matter what we're doing at the major league level 
Um, those things can be mutually exclusive, and, and I hope that we can do both of those things. Um, but that is of critical importance to us long term from a sustainability standpoint. I skipped this one after we were talking about the Red Sox and Nebraska situation. Was the idea of having your own team, so to speak, the one of the biggest things that attracted you to Arizona? No, not necessarily. Not in a vacuum. That wasn't really an overarching goal. Um, I, I think the intrigue of being here and, and seeing the situation and knowing that it was a you know, going being more so probably in Cleveland than in Boston. When I when I when I was in Boston, you know, Theo and Ben and those guys, the the infrastructure was sort of very well developed. Jason McLeod was there, and they were already having very strong drafts, and the farm system was in a good place, and the major league team was good. <clears throat> you know, when we were in Cleveland, we went through more of a transition from the '01 team that tore back down to build up ultimately to the to the '07 team in Cleveland. I saw this, in some ways, a little more analogous to that where. There was a building process involved, and, 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 and from the infrastructure level underneath the farm system and, and other things, and it was very, very intriguing. And knowing the people out here, the ownership, they were going through the process, and how committed they were to, to building those things, that, that was what was most, most exciting. How do you view the overall state of the National League West right now? <laughs> I think it's going to be a very competitive division. I think there's a lot of really good teams. Um, you know, the Dodgers and the Giants get the notoriety, and they should. I think the Rockies are an extremely, extremely uh, strong team. I think the Padres have done a great job of building talent underneath, even if they're not maybe where they need to be at the major league level. So it's going to be very competitive, um, and it's a tough, tough challenge. But you know, hopefully we can we can figure out a way to, to knock them off.